When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. I'm Stephanie Safarian, and this is episode 104. You are listening to the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a show about living simply and sustainably with your family. Here's your host, Stephanie Safarian. Hello there, friends. Welcome back and Happy New Year. On today's show, we are discussing the importance of communities as they apply to sustainability efforts. Now, we all know that community is important, right? Communities enable the sharing of resources in a small-scale circular economy, as opposed, of course, to a linear one. But still, many of us live in neighborhoods with minimal, if any, contact with our neighbors. And although many of us may quite physically live within a community, many of us feel isolated from others. And social media? In some ways, social media has done the opposite of which it was intended, which is to connect us, by just isolating us more. My guest today argues that close-knit communities are important for a big reason, and that is that when it comes to issues surrounding sustainability, a sense of community is vital because it encourages the sharing of big ideas. Today's guest is Waylon Jepson. Waylon grew up in a unique environment, shall we say, You'll actually hear him describe his childhood as, quote, off the grid in the interview. And his experiences give him a unique perspective on why exactly humans need one another. Enjoy the interview. Waylon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really thrilled to talk to you about the importance of community in sustainability efforts. We'll get there in a couple minutes, but before we even go to what we're talking about today, please tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Yeah. So my name is Waylon Jepson, and I'm just finishing my degree in mathematics at CSU. I'm a student and I really like to solve problems, and I'm trying to solve some problems around sustainability and communities. Yes, the mathematics major definitely is about solving <laughs> solving problems. And <laughs> I want to talk to you right off the bat about your upbringing. I know you've mentioned before that it was, quote, off the grid. Tell me all about it. 
Yeah, so I definitely had a not so traditional upbringing. The story starts a little bit before uh, I come into the picture. My parents, they were both comparative religion studiers in academia. My dad was a, definitely an analytical mind. He does um, some engineering stuff now, and my mom was a therapist. But they met in Nepal, and that's where they fell in love. And they um, uh, really liked these spiritual studies of northern Tibet, and they ended up raising me and my younger sister off the grid in a uh, kind of a Tibetan community in southern Colorado, um, up against the mountains in the middle of nowhere. My dad was uh, pretty into solar and alternative energy, so we were literally off the power grid. <laughs> um, and it was it was very. Now that I'm in the quote unquote real world. Uh, I appreciate it so much more because of the things I learned there and my ability to, well, kind of requirements to think about energy usage and sustainability um, because it was limited. It wasn't infinite. So paint a picture for me a little bit more about this community, Tibetan community, I believe you said. How many people were in it? Yeah, so in Tibet... Uh, Tibetan Buddhism, the t- communities are called sanghas, and there was it wasn't, <laughs> you know, people joke they're like, "Wow, it sounds like you grew up in like this cult," <laughs> and it, it wasn't like that at all, you know. Like we were definitely still very kind of isolated, even within the community, because we all lived kind of far away up against the mountains, but. I would say there's maybe like 30 people and it's grown since now the Sangha is international and the lineage holder of the school of thought that I grew up under has become a lot bigger. But yeah, my parents, our first house, maybe this will paint a good picture. They built their first two houses, my parents together. Um, The first one was an earth ship. You probably know a little bit about what those are. They're kind of like dugouts and built for like heat sustainability, have the built out of hay bales and bottles and stucco. And it was really cool. It was my first first home I grew up in. I think you lost a couple listeners at Earthship. (laughs) I'm just going (laughs) to say that. But when you talk about your upbringing in your childhood, you I can just hear the fondness in your voice. And I have a lot of questions about your childhood. And I think that if I have these questions, my listeners are too. So if you don't mind, we're going to do like a quick little rapid fire thing. Okay. Sure. Question one is, how did you get your education? Um, yeah, so K through 12, I uh, drove an hour to and from every day, a charter school. In high school, I actually went away to a boarding school that had an immense wealth of opportunities to me, and I'm ever so grateful. It was called the Colorado Rocky Mountain School in Carbondale, and now I'm finishing my undergraduate degree at CSU. Were there other children in the community of a similar age as you that you made friendships with? Yeah, totally. In the Tibetan Buddhist community, other uh, people in the community on your age line are called your your Dharma brothers. So I had Dharma brothers and sisters. What is your fondest memory in your community as a child? 
Oh man, that's so hard. I think playing outside was always so, so fun. There was a river that I kind of lived nearby and we'd build forts and <laughs> be kids and climb trees. And it was really awesome. Um, and looking back, I, I value it a little bit more because uh, I feel like maybe people don't play outside as much as they should, including adults. Playing is not for not just for kids. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. All right. Two more questions. The first one is, was all the food grown? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. There was an, uh, a local grocery store that w had a lot of grown food in the closest town to where I was living. So if we didn't grow it, somebody else grew it nearby. And yeah, it was it was a mix of those things. Okay. And my final question is, have you given any thought to how, if you choose to have a family, how you will raise your family? Would you go back to a similar community or not? You know, that's a, that's a really that's a great question. I've definitely thought about that a lot. And I think if I'm raising kids, I would love to kind of go back into the wilderness and get away from, you know, all these distractions of the world and spend a lot of meaningful and intentional time raising my children. I think it's so easy to get distracted, you know, and so it'd be really nice to really give kids the full attention that I could. How was a sense of community fostered within this community? And I asked that question because I live in a neighborhood, right? I live in a traditional American neighborhood where the houses, I can see my neighbors. And in theory, if I needed something, if I needed that cup of sugar or just yesterday I needed a cookie cutter, like if I needed those things in theory, I should be able to walk to my neighbor's house and ask for it. But I feel as though we're so far removed from true community these days in 2019, now almost 2020, uh, that you wouldn't knock on somebody's door uninvited or unannounced. I would never do that. And so I guess I'm, I guess my question here is what was so great about your 30 person community and how is it better than, better or different than the way the average American lives? Sure. Yeah. And I definitely don't know if it is better because I've definitely not. <laughs> Uh, spent time growing up in an average American. But some things that I definitely really value about it in kind of coming into a more domesticated society and pursuing my college education is my awareness of media consumption, because there wasn't very much media consumption out there. I know you do a lot of discussion around minimalism and less is more and consumerism and advertising kind of contrasts that. I remember growing up, my mom had this Tibetan proverb she would say, and it went like, oh, if you have a yak, you have a yak's worth of problem. And the idea is that like for every material thing that you own, you have responsibility around that thing. For like example, if I have dishes, like great, I can like serve my food on these dishes and eat, eat from these dishes, but I have to clean them. Same goes for the clothes on my back. And say I have a car, 
and I have to pay for gas and insurance and every single thing that you own, you have to maintain and a responsibility to keep functional and take care of. Oh my gosh, I love, I love that. Yeah, you have two cars and a boat and a summer home. You have two cars and a boat and a summer home's worth of problems. I love that. And it really touches on the minimalist aspect of what I talk about on this show. But let's really connect your upbringing with sustainability. How did your community not just impact your understanding of sustainability, but how was it absolutely instrumental in your decision to pursue green entrepreneurship as an adult? Yeah, I think that's a really excellent question. Growing up, I definitely didn't see as much of the problems. um, And, you know, I say problems very lightly, you know, I just didn't see very much of the world in the way that I grew up. And everybody kind of had the same understanding of limited resources and using less and less being more and not trying to produce a lot of waste or use a lot of energy in it was peaceful and simple in a way. And I think really had a very constructive impact on a lot of people's mental health um, who grew up there that I grew up with. And contrasting that kind of to where I am now We see how problematic single-use plastics are and how there's all these not-so-sustainable practices that are happening and climate change and things are getting serious and it's all so, so overwhelming. And we think to ourselves like, oh my God, what am I going to do as an individual? And how I want to address that problem and I think how a lot of people address that problem And one of the most realistic ways to do so is to be like, oh, like I can't fix this on my own, but if I work with my community and I work with people that also believe in this, you know, like together we can begin to have a difference. And I think we have already, you have to be patient with these things. And that's, that's why community is so important in addressing uh, sustainability in, in my opinion. Going back to my cup of sugar example, the fact is that most of us live such isolated lives apart from our neighbors, apart from others. And when it comes to sustainability and aspiring towards green living specifically, why do you find this isolation so troubling? I think isolation is kind of the opposite of community, right? Social media has kind of done the opposite of what we thought it would be or what its intended purpose would be, you know, it's like, oh, like, let's connect people all across the world. But in reality, like, now people would rather message somebody online than have a conversation with them. There's a real uh, lack of authenticity about, you know, having a conversation with people. And the isolation that those sort of things that you're talking about bring about hurt communities and their abilities to build and have conversations and learn and grow from each other. Like some of the greatest opportunities in the world, I think are just learning from people because everybody knows something that you don't know. There's always valuable things to learn from everyone. It's easy to lose sight of that, I think. Mm. 
And when I think about the benefits of a strong, like-minded community from an eco-friendly perspective, the first example that obviously comes to mind is that when you are part of a strong community, you can share resources. So you can pass down your children's clothes, you can share whatever item with somebody who needs it so they don't have to run to the store and buy it, right? But you can also share ideas and you can share what's working and what's not. And you can, (laughs) two of, I've been trying to get this started with some of my gardening friends in my area. It hasn't taken off yet, but every summer I would love to like be the person to grow the tomatoes, let's say, enough for three families. And then somebody else grows the green beans and the other person grows the, I don't know, pick something, the eggplants. And we all, you know, share. So we can just grow one thing and really share our resources in a way that benefits everybody. So I guess my question here is beyond just the basic, you know, passing things down and sharing physical resources, how can the average listener who lives in a traditionally isolated Western neighborhood find a sense of community where he or she lives? Yeah, sure. And that's an excellent question. And I also, just side note, really love your idea of community gardening. I think community gardening is really, really powerful. But to your question um, about people feeling more isolated. I think what the best way for people to be involved in communities is to not be so afraid to talk to people. And everybody has their different circles of life, you know, different people have different jobs and they run into their coworkers and maybe they like their coworkers, maybe they don't like their coworkers, but maybe somebody has some hobbies. The point is is everybody has some some things they like to enjoy to do or they have to do to make a living. And they have a community of people around those things. And maybe at first your community of friends and loved ones and people you hang out with isn't uh, a, a really sustainable community. But I think just having the conversation about sustainability is constructive and bouncing off ideas and sharing knowledge with the people that you surround yourself like oh hey you guys heard about these zero waste living and sustainable lifestyles like what do you think of that you know like it's kind of I'm sick of all the plastic that I use like I'd love to maybe use less plastic or make less waste. It's these small things that don't seem so monumental that are the seeds that can make bigger and bigger steps. Something you just said made a light bulb go off in my mind, really, which is that social media has isolated people by and large. But for me, in creating this podcast and finding listeners from all around the world who agree with my message and need a little inspiration, the internet has kind of created a really strong and powerful community around just like-minded individuals. We don't even have to so much as live next door to each other or even in the same town, but across the world, I've been connected virtually with so many people who want to do their part. And I can't tell you the amount of inspiration and motivation and encouragement that 
everybody's individual messages and emails to me have been. So my hope is, and my hope for this podcast is that it's doing the same back to all of you listeners. So if you've reached out, thank you. If you haven't, go for it. I love I love responding to each and every one of you. But you are 22, you are still in school, yet you decided you do not have enough on your plate as a senior in college. You want to start a business and you started Humble Shapes. Tell me about the name Humble Shapes and then tell me about what you're trying to do through Humble Shapes. Sure. Yeah, great questions. The name Humble Shapes, something that was really important to me in building a business is the responsibility that business owners have um, when it comes to sustainability. Because whether they like it or not, oftentimes businesses have a much larger impact on the world, let alone the environment, than any individual. And so humility kind of resonated with that. And then shapes, uh, I, what I want to do with humble shapes is make a lot of quote unquote humble shapes that are plastic alternative products that are able to biodegrade and able to build a better future for our children and our grandchildren rather than have an excessive amount of use of plastic and other materials that won't degrade in our lifetimes or even our children's lifetimes. Hmm. Well, your first product that you're selling is beeswax wraps. And I love beeswax wraps. I will never have to fight with a piece of saran wrap ever again. And it is just so freeing and wonderful to know that. But there are so many beeswax wraps on the market. I, just today, for preparing for this interview, I did a quick Amazon search, and I think I found like, I, I don't know, at least eight. And so I, I need to know, and I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, but I have to do it. How are your beeswax wraps better than the other eight that I saw on Amazon? Yeah. First of all, uh, before I, I go down that rabbit hole, I think competition in sustainable products is actually a really good thing, despite it actually being hard for me to compete. And the reason for that is if there's competition in a specific market, it means that there's a demand. And that means that all of our communities are having an impact and that the world is changing and sustainable products are being developed in greater volumes. Now, when I was designing my beeswax wraps, I did a lot of research on what people disliked about other beeswax wraps. And there was two main things that stood out to me that were problematic to other people or that other people had voiced their opinions on. And one of them was the stick of the wraps and whether or not they were too sticky or not sticky enough. So in designing our wraps, that was something I definitely took into mind and in finding the optimal uh, stick. Uh, <laughs> and then the other thing that uh, was definitely brought to people's attention was the thickness of the cloth, like the malleability, and how easy it was to mold or unmold or st stay where you molded it. And I think both of these qualities play into the utilitarianism of the, the product. You know, you want 
one that actually does what you want it to do and preserve food and fruit. So those were the two biggest points that we we tried to make our wraps way better. Mm-hmm. Well, and from a sad but true personal history story of mine, when I first was dipping my toes in zero-waste living and I saw all these how-tos online of how to make beeswax wraps, I thought, I can do this. I'm just going to do it at home. And I wish I didn't. I wish I hadn't done that because <laughs> – First of all, beeswax takes an awful long time to melt. It makes a mess in your kitchen. And a little known fact about DIY wraps is that over time, they lose their stickiness and they just don't work anymore. So you're spending hours in the kitchen painting wax on a piece of fabric that lose their stickiness. So for anybody listening who had it in their, on their to-do list to make beeswax wraps, just just don't do it. Don't do it. I've been worrying a lot about greenwashing lately, especially as eco-friendly, quote, green products become more and more mainstream. I find myself wondering, well, how on earth is another manufactured product eco-friendly? Like, that's an oxymoron. So convince me why... Why yours, and how do I know I'm supporting a company that is dedicated to sustainability? Sure. Yeah, and that's also a really great question. And I think living in a capitalistic society where people consume things, (laughs) there are intermediary steps in becoming more sustainable. And as a society and a marketplace, if you can make your marketplace is more sustainable. That's a way to come to terms with the current economic function of the world. And yeah, I ideally, I think you should not buy things as much as possible. And I actually think DIY is a good idea. And I hope it works out for some people. But there are really ethical ways to manufacture things. Just because something is manufactured doesn't necessarily mean it's unethical. Just now in in Colorado, where I'm from and where I am right now, there's a lot of talk about hemp because hemp fibers have a lot of uh, abilities to be biodegradable and you can make uh, biodegradable plastics out of hemp and have huge functionalities in clothing with hemp fibers that are are so green. Um, But you can't make a lot of these things without technology. And to put these at scale to the world to be like, hey, guys, let's stop using plastic, for example. Let's use hemp instead. You need to be able to make hemp products at scale. And manufacturing facilities in general aren't necessarily not green at all. You can totally have manufacturing facilities that are totally powered by alternative energy and have a, a net zero production of carbon. And that's really cool that all the way up the supply chain, and also I commend all the communities of sustainability because Everybody, all of us talking about it and living more sustainable lifestyles, this is 
are doing, you know, like the world is starting to listen and there are sustainable products and not just on the marketplace, but there are also sustainable manufacturing companies that uh, value sustainability. Um, And so all the way up the supply chain, our voices are being heard. And that's exciting. Where can listeners find Humble Shapes online? Yeah, so humbleshapes.com, super easy, www.humbleshapes.com. And I'm working real hard to be active and up to date on all of the social media platforms. It's Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Still trying to figure out how to use Pinterest, but it's really exciting to me if people are interested or reach out or I don't know. Talking to people and building communities is it's important. So let's do that. <laughs> Waylon, I want to thank you so much for coming on and really giving us insight as to an alternate childhood, really, and uh, opening up some possibilities for those of us who would really like to connect more and really make sustainability a central focus of our lives. So thank you so much. I will absolutely link to your website and to your social media in this week's show notes. And I really look forward to seeing what you do next. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you on your show. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Waylon Jepson. You can find him and Humble Shapes in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 104. That's M-A-M-A minimalist.com forward slash 104. On next week's show, we are finding out what actually happens behind the doors of Goodwill and other donation centers. I will see you then and happy 2020.